Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self. Today, I'm very excited to introduce to you a new friend. Her name is Anastasia Dedyukhina. I hope I pronounced that okay. And she is the founder of Consciously Digital, and she's doing amazing things. Her company is based in London. And like my fellow global nomads, who I always, I always seem to find these wonderful people that are living in a suitcase, she is now calling in from Barcelona, Spain. Yay! Welcome, Anastasia. Thank you so much. Um, It's really nice to join the global network of people who are interested and concerned about the interaction. Yeah, I mean, what we're in right now is an amazing time to have this conversation because what you and I have been talking about for years and the basis of our work is now becoming so prevalent and obvious to people. They're, They're really recognizing that, wow, this is something we need to not only talk about, but we need to to work on and understand how how it impacts our lives and how it impacts our ability to do our work and and remain human in the process. So let's dig down a little bit. So can we introduce our digital selfers here a little bit more to your background? You are a, a PhD, have been working in this space for a while. And tell me a little bit more about who are you, Anastasia, and how did you come into working with Consciously Digital? Sure. So as you can guess from my name, I come from Russia. I grew up there. I was working as a journalist for many years. Wrote my PhD there. Actually, media, media and technology was my specialization. And then I wanted to move abroad, work actually in digital marketing because I thought, oh, this is fascinating field. This is exciting. So I went. I got my MBA from uh, SDA Bocconi in Italy and uh, NYU Stern, US. I loved living in New York and ended up in London working in a dream job in various roles. In fact, digital marketing. My last dream job was very uh, an account director for a very big technology brand. And I think I can probably say now I absolutely hated it. <laughs> I don't know whether it's professional, but I hated it for a very specific reason. I just didn't like how unhuman my job felt. So people around were amazing. The money was fantastic. You know, we could have all like this free food and everything that you get in the dream tech company office. And at the same time, I think all I was doing was just moving you know, numbers from different Excel spreadsheet rows to another row, uh, answering emails. And, you know, especially after a job of a journalist that's highly creative, that is about talking to people and discovering new things. And it was just basically killer. I obviously was asking myself lots of questions about what's wrong with me. And my answer was, okay, I need to take a break. So together with a break from my career, I decided to take a break from my smartphone and actually replace it with a very basic phone, Nokia. Not on commission, but very, very, very recommended. 25 days on standby. And uh, this was five years ago, actually. And uh, that's how the whole journey started. I never had an intention of, you know, becoming a digital well-being specialist. I don't think they even had this term at that time, but uh, just uh, I felt that I was much happier. I felt more connected with myself. 
I was qualifying as a coach as well. I was uh, telling people about how great it felt without, you know, with having more time for myself, having more time to really connect with people. I think people and interest towards people has always been one of my driving forces. And uh, people kept asking me questions about, oh, what is it like? Do you coach others how to do this? And, you know, the more they asked, the more I thought, well, maybe there is a problem. Maybe there is something I can help people with. So I started looking into it, started in bit uh, talking to different specialists, reading neuroscience research, wrote a book, uh, one thing followed the other. And then all of a sudden, I think about probably two and a half, three years ago, everyone started about this. Probably the biggest trigger was a scandal with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. And all of a sudden, this became a big thing. So I ended up setting up Consciously Digital, which initially was just consultancy and one-person coaching company. And now we have 58 coaches, actually, who graduated from our program, who work around the world, some with specialization in actually designing technology, so consulting company on how to design technology in a more ethical way. Some helping companies restructure the culture so it supports more human elements and makes digital transformation more human. Some working with parents, children. In fact, we're launching in a week the first edition of Consciously Digital Parents Academy to help parents tackle the issue of managing screen time, which seems to be huge in general and especially now during the lockdown. So I think it's kind of it's been a very interesting time. I've been super lucky because I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. My work is all about, well, was all about traveling every week somewhere and inspiring people. And now I'm figuring out how to keep inspiring people without overwhelming them from the screen. <laughs> and I'm happy to talk about this separately, but I think everyone has an overdose of webinars overdose of just talking about things. So I'm personally looking for new formats, which is another very interesting challenge. Yeah. And so now we have, so apart from like the consultancy coaching services, we have an educational program for coaches, which is the only program in the world that's certified by International Coach Federation as a program that prepares digital well-being coaches. And basically what Digital Wellbeing Coach does is helping people have a more balanced relationship with the device or companies. Because what we see more and more is that technology is taking a bigger part of our life. Or as there was a, an essay, think about, written five or six years ago that started with technology, software is eating up the world. Mm. <laughs> And I think that's what we're trying to do, you know, like to help people adapt to the world that is being it up. For sure. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, we have a sort of a similar journey. I've, I've worked in, in social strategy space for almost 30 years now. I'm dating myself. But that really evolved into my academic work and then digital well-being. And it's been amazing to see how the conversation has not really changed. The technology has changed over time, but the, te the conversation really hasn't changed that much. It's really sort of getting over fear-based and then learning balance in your behaviors around the technology and sort of recognizing the value that it adds, 
but also really the importance of having really contextual content and being able to filter out all of the extra noise. Because the beautiful thing about the internet is that you can learn anything. The danger with the internet is that you can learn anything. They both are sort of constantly feeding into it and and it's ever present. And I mean, in this show, we interview people across industries about how technology has changed the way they work and live. No industry has not been touched. It is not possible to have an industry without technology at this point. And that may be just a communication factor among employees or whatever it is, but it's sort of, you know, the whole conversation about how do you use, you know, digital transformation is it's ever present. It's not something that's sort of one, you know, for tech companies only. And I think that that has really changed the conversation in a different way, particularly now where schools are all online, all work is trying to find some way that they can at least function remotely. Even the hospitality industry is having to integrate these technology tools in order to be able to do either remote delivery or And so even those ones that you think aren't touched by it are very much touched by their technology. And that started even prior to the epidemic because you had, you know, you had Uber Eats and you have, you know, these organizations that are, you know, sort of forcing different industries into or being more comfortable with technology. The taxi companies now have their own apps because they need to compete with the the Ubers, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things, we talked about this a little bit in the green room because That conversation is sort of ever present. And one of the things we talk a lot about on this show is the importance of delegating. And part of that is understanding what's available in terms of remote employees and remote work. Can you talk a little bit about how that fits into the model of your conversation around being consciously digital, both as a provider and also as someone that is seeking that balance and that support so they can be human in their job? We work a lot actually with companies and obviously now one of the biggest subject is uh, remote work and we tend to connect it to mental health as well and productivity. And we do research, lots of research with employees. So one of the things we're noticing is that people have problems taking breaks when they work remotely, especially women. They say that they're feeling guilty. If you look statistically, actually, uh, technology and working remotely has lengthened the workday. And another interesting trend is that while productivity actually doesn't go down for the first few weeks, then actually it starts to go down. Why is that the case? It's not that people cannot work remotely, yes, they can. But uh, And in fact, maybe for many of us, it would be very good because maybe we could live in villages and show up in the office once a week. We would sort out lots of problems of the high prices in the city and so on. But there is a problem here. And the problem is that lots of employers use technology as a digital leash. (laughs) Whether they do it consciously or not, uh, not quite sure. But I think it's even big technology companies that started that, right? So they create this wonderful office spaces where you can spend lots of time. But essentially what they're doing, they're blurring the boundaries between work and life, play and work. Why? Because actually this makes you work uh, harder, more, and so on. And um, we are seeing the same thing at home, right? Especially if you work for a large organization, multinational organization, your emails never stop coming. Uh, What's the consequence? Um, Actually, there is research that says that after about 
20 minutes of expecting a work-related email, already your anxiety level, your cortisol goes up. Just a mere expectation of work-related email. And I think this is very, very important also for women who have children because they're not really here and they're not there. Yeah, they're kind of at home, but not really. So they're doing everything halfway. So I would be very, very, if I were working in HR or if I were a manager of the company, I would very be careful with what's going to happen with people like in six, 12 months. Because pretending that people are working from home <laughs> is actually pretending, right? They're trying to do their best now. They're not equipped. They're not equipped ergonomically. If you just talk to any osteopath, they will tell you that the number of cases of people having carpal tunnel issues with their necks is just going skyrocketing, essentially. Mm. Most, uh, I don't know if you ever notice how most people work at home. Most people have laptops, right? So it's not that they're sitting in front of their desks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they usually would sit down. Backs. Rounded up uh, with laptops on their knees, so lots of strain on the eyes. That is just one little aspect, right? So I think it's before we start talking about, yeah, we can work remotely. We should say, yes, technology allows us to work remotely. But the fact that technology allows us doesn't mean that we can do it and we are ready to do it. That's opportunity, but there needs to be lots of things set up before, you know, such as company culture. Company needs need to be very clear about their expectations. Uh, people rewarded for applying to emails outside of the working hours. Are they expected to? Is there a benefit to it? If we're not talking about customer services. Customer services, it's kind of clear. Are people equipped actually with the professional computers to work from? Most are not, right? So maybe like on the, the biggest companies have bought these to their employees. And for example, uh, in Russia, my native country, most people are just forced to buy their own laptops or computers or they're going to be fired. And I think we're getting into very interesting legal slash political field here. Now, I'm not a legal person, but I can't stop wondering. So there have been hundreds and hundreds of years of the fight for human rights and specifically for the right to work for a particular number of hours, to separate work from life, you know, to have certain working conditions. And if you look at what's happening now with working from home, actually it's not the case at all. And in some countries, it's put kind of in a nicer way. You know, in some countries, the, <laughs> the employers are just being very rough. But I would say, you know, I have a pretty good visibility over most of the world and pretty much it's happening in all the countries. Well, for sure. I think the metrics are changing as to what measures a good employee or it measures productivity. And, you know, it used to be you show up at work and, you know, basically if you're there, you're in first, you're out last, you know, it was about the time put in. And as we know from a lot of research recently that, and, and even actually not so recently, that the hours don't necessarily mean anything. Actually, you're, you know, you're very productive for about four hours in the day and the rest is just busy time. And so, you know, some people are really learning how to thrive in this environment because they put in their four hours and then they go off and they do the, you know, the, the walk with the dog and get some fresh air, whatever they can do within the environment that they're in. But absolutely there's, you know, I actually just 
just submitted an article and it was sort of like, wait a minute, you're just reading my article. But it was a lot, it was talking a lot about the importance of when you're looking at the, from the organizational level, defining a culture that allows for weekends, for example, or it allows for the end of the day that, so that you can really mark that and have life outside of work. It has to come from the leadership to define, yes, we want you to go have free time. We want you to, you know, to be able to get rest and to recharge so that you come back and can have that effective four hours or whatever it is to get the job done. So the metrics are changing, but also the culture has to define, you know, what, what is, uh, what is important. Is it the hours you put in? Yeah. I do agree. And honestly, there are still so many companies that measure the quality of their people based on, you know, how fast they respond to emails or uh, whether they're very available, you know, like responding to the request straight away, which we know is detrimental, right? Because you can't actually do deep work if you're simultaneously trying to do something and you have some chat box open and scientifically proven. So I think it's a question of educating lots of managers just uh, about basic things like how the brain works, what makes us productive. But also I think there is a deeper philosophical question here, which is I think we're still seeing people as effective, efficient machines. And what we see in the business is that managers and business owners are trying to, you know, like replace their <laughs> draw like people who are weak or, you know, in the places where people are performing weaker, uh, trying to automate this, trying to replace this with software. And I think this is a very wrong approach because it doesn't recognize, you know, how to get the best out of people in a way. And I think this is really the big conversation we need to have about what makes human great. How do you manage a human? What is appropriate to leave? What kind of work is appropriate appropriate to leave for humans? And how do you make sure that they do this? Because humans are cyclical. You know, they have their cycle, not just women. Women, uh, I mean, there's lots of research about this. But actually anyone, you know, we cannot be productive every day for eight hours. You know, we have our ups, we have our downs, we have our circumstances. Does this make us worse workers? No. It means that we need somehow to create a culture in the company that actually can take this into account. And in theory, this is exactly what technology can enable us. For sure. What are we doing with technology? Are we actually using to empower humans or are we using to control them? And what I'm seeing, unfortunately, a lot during the lockdown is that there are more and more controlling tools. Now, when the bosses are controlling how much time the person is spending in front of the screen, and say, no, you know, like you didn't log in into the corporate email for two hours, so therefore you were not working, which is very disturbing, which is, by the way, something that Marisa Meyer was doing when she joined the Yahoo, right? She uh, stopped allowing people to work from home based on the fact that they were not logging into the corporate email. So is this really a fair assumption to say that if you're not checking your email, you're not being productive? I'm not sure about that. Well, maybe if you're a salesperson, yes, but I would want to see the output. Or I think another thing that we're seeing a lot now is, I don't know if you've been seeing this in the US, but in Europe, I'm, I'm increasingly seeing this, uh, lots of surveillance tool for HR to see what employees are doing, right? And how they're doing. And companies are now investing lots of money into that. Hmm. And uh, I can't help questioning 
whether what we're trying to do exactly. Are we trying to build an empowering culture or are we trying to build a culture of controlling and just making people act like machines? Because then we're going to have a problem very soon. People will never be as productive. <laughs> yeah, like People make mistakes. They learn from these mistakes, hopefully, but they will never be as productive or as predictable as machines. That's probably the beauty of it. Well, for sure. And I think that there's you bring up a really important point, which is the ethics piece. And how do we create policy to ensure that we are allowed to be human and we are allowed to have those, those flows and those ebbs and you know, I mean, if we're all if we're all cyclical, that also businesses are also cyclical, and sometimes we're out of sync with the cycles of our business and the humans in the cycles. But what's important is recognizing the ethical boundaries of you know how much can you track and what is acceptable and why are you tracking? What is the real motivation behind it? I think right now part of what we're experiencing is everyone feels a little out of control, and what little control you can capture you hold on to it so tight because it's the only thing that you sense that, okay, well, this is something I know, and this is something I can see and I can track and I can measure. And everything else is just, we'll wait and see what happens. And some people are taking that as an opportunity. Some organizations are taking that as an opportunity to look at what the future is and maybe do some internal growth and transformation. But a lot of them aren't. I mean, we're in a little bubble in California. Everybody's all about, okay, this is the chrysalis. This is an opportunity for us to dig deep inside and evolve. And that's from an organizational level as well as an individual level. But I don't think it's like that everywhere. I think that there's a lot of really just grasping onto what little we can hold on to, to be able to have that sense of control. And for organizations, particularly the ones that are not comfortable and haven't done a lot of remote work in the past and haven't had their employees so far away. It's the little bit of control that they feel that they can have, whether it's ethical or whether it's actually effective, because it may be actually adding on to the responsibility of the managers to all of a sudden be tracking their employees rather than just saying, are we getting the output that we need? Which is ultimately where you need to be is focusing on what's your vision, what's your mission, and how do you get the output that you need in order to accomplish that? Rather than how many hours is your employee online and have they checked their email in the last 15 minutes? Which leads me to another question is, you know, what's the role of technology in our decision making? Because you know, if you talk to any people who are, I mean, as a PhD, I obviously worked a little bit with statistics. But if you talk like, you know, to serious mathematicians, they will tell you that data depends on what you ask as a question and how sure. you ask the question. So you, you can play with the numbers as you will. And the imperfection of technology will always be the case that it relies on a certain simplified model of the world. So with all my respect to Facebook, which is a fantastic product, yeah, how do they measure engagement? They measure it by likes mm -hmm. or views of the post. Is this literally the engagement? I would question this if we're talking about workplace by Facebook. And I've been talking to actually lots of companies who have the solution and then they don't know what to do with it because they see that their employees are just looking for the posts, you know, and actually, you know, like they're not doing any work. And then they go back to Facebook and say, hey, you know, we have a problem. And Facebook says, no, there is no problem. People are engaged there. You see their likes, their views of the post. So what are the metrics? And why are we using this metric? So if an HR person thinks that 
proxy of engagement is you know, the number of hours, again. And this is his desire to quantify everything. Then we're going to have the problem. So probably it's the case of agreeing mutually and understanding that not everything in the life can be quantified. Again, if you go into research, uh, so the research I was doing was very much about the quality research. And actually, my topic was about trying to quantify some of the things that could not be quantified. So I spent lots of time figuring out how to do this, because then it would allow me to create very beautiful charts and prove my hypothesis. Hmm. Even the most complicated models, yeah, like with AI and so, they're making lots of assumptions. And we're trying to reduce such a complex thing as a human or the system of humans to very basic indicators. And this is creating the problem. For sure. When, when I did my dissertation research, it was also I had to do, because it's a similar thing, I had to do both qualitative and quantitative in order to really capture both sides and really be able to say they actually correspond with each other. But I think ultimately the other challenge is that whether we're doing our research through technology or we're doing our research around technology and we're doing it with the human factor, we often forget that the, the mediated tool in that process can actually influence the results. So you, you know, if you don't take that into account, then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're assuming that, you know, when you throw out a survey, you're just getting the response to the survey, but maybe you're getting a response to the feeling of taking a survey rather than, or, or they're, you know, it's like when you ask a question to a child, they're going to give you the answer that they think you want, not the, and it's not lying. They're just saying, okay, well, what does she, what does she want me to say? Like, you know, what would be the best response to get a good, you know, to get a good smile or get a reward or whatever. And ultimately, we do the same thing when we're doing studies. That's why capturing both that, you know, quantitative and qualitative is so important. And as we're working in an area that used to be considered just the soft skills and not as important, but it's about humans. And humans are all so different. You have to take into account the human factor. It's not black and white. Where do we move from that? I mean, I, you know, we're sort of, you know, preaching to the choir when we talk to each other. So, of, of course, <laughs> it's, you know, I think we probably have a very sim- similar philosophy around it. But I think, you know, what are some of the tools that you teach or that you, you work with with your clients to help them recognize the human factor, but also the fact that that human factor influences the technology's output? Well, for me, it's different things. For me, one of the main ones is to have actually diversity in technology, you know, as much as a buzzword it is. Mm-hmm. When you have people who are not from tech background, they are bringing in this different understanding. People from humanities, people the different, like from the different origin rather than the Silicon Valley. Again, Silicon Valley, fantastic. I have lots of friends there, like when we started back to New York. But... The world is different, mm-hmm. you know, and in the products that are impacting the lives of billions of people, and probably they should also have a say in that. For me, it's also about educating the creators uh, of technology and educating the investors and educating them in soft skills, mm-hmm. educating them actually about the, how the human brain works, yeah, what's productivity, and so that, you know, they don't just rely on behaviorism. They are creating uh, their tech products. And that their investors are not asking them for the engagement metrics that actually have nothing to do with engagement, yeah, but have to do like with their animal reactions. Uh, so that's more or less like things that we're uh, we're trying to do. 
I think there needs to be some changes on the political level, policy level, for sure. I'm not a big fan of like massive regulation, but I think we have to recognize that technology is a very powerful tool. Yeah, like tech companies, if they wanted tomorrow to take over the world, you know, <laughs> actually, they would be, it would be very easy. There's no government as a power, such a power as Facebook, can speak like there. A message if they wanted to, what is it, 3 billion people that they have? Um, for me, it's also about what I'm trying at least to teach the students is about check with themselves, you know, what makes their, themselves human, the values and seeing like what place they want to leave to technology in their lives and consequently to their children. And yes, maybe, you know, they, they won't be productive all this time, but it's okay as well. So it's about... You know, which part of your work, your free time, you're ready to outsource, which is not aligning the digital habits with values. So if nature is important, then, you know, maybe consider changing your habits uh, just to reduce the impact on the environment. So, for example, I don't know if you've been looking into this, but, you know, there is lots of conversations about let's give up flights to reduce carbon footprint, right? Of course. But we are creating 50 million tons of e-waste every year by constantly upgrading our devices. So each of us will change our phone approximately 20 times over the course of our lives. Now, even if I don't want to change my phone, I'm actually being forced to do that because lots of apps stop being supported by the creators after about two years. Yeah? So I'm forced literally to keep changing my phone. And only 20% of smartphones are officially recycled. Absolutely. That's a very big problem. And one thing we, we've been talking a lot about recently with e-waste and how do we, you know, how do we transform that? How do we capture that? And also the opportunity to, because people upgrade, but the phones are actually still functioning and there's a lot of people that need phones. How do we get those phones or get those devices to, for example, you were saying this population in, in Russia, that they're being forced to buy their computers. Well, there's, you know, people around here upgrade their computers every two years. Those are perfectly functioning, fine computers. They're just not the latest and greatest. So how do we get those, you know, to the people that need them? How do we minimize that e-waste? And if they are non-functional, there's precious metals in there. There's, you know, there are toxic things in there, batteries and things that need to be taken care of. But how do we make that a priority? And I think part of that is going to have to be policy to make sure that it's not just a question of recycling, you know, your food waste and your packaging, but the e-waste needs to go with that. And how do we make that easier for people to do and help them recognize that you don't just throw your phone in the trash when you're done with it. You actually, it has a second life, if you will, whether it's as a recycled product or whether it's as a reused product somewhere else where it can be applied. And I think that is a, it's a really big topic. We actually have talked a lot about that and have been trying to look at some new ways that we can, part of that is culture, sort of recognize what are things that can be reused or recycled and how do we build that into the consciousness of how we use our devices and it, do we need to upgrade? You know, if what you have is functional and working, why, what is that? Is it a need or is it a want? In terms yeah, of upgrading. I think, again, like even if I don't want to, but the company is forcing me to, right, then I absolutely agree this is the part where the legislation is needed. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe not forcing people to upgrade because the app is not supported anymore 
Oh, you know, the same thing is, again, you know, there are some countries uh, where, like in like Russia, with things that are doing, they're forcing, you know, like, older people, if they seek to send the selfies to themselves every five hours, and if they're not, then they're fined by 4,000 rubles, which is approximately, like, one-third of their pension. Now, have you ever seen an old person trying to take a selfie, let alone send it somewhere? I'm, I'm sorry, but it's... <laughs> it's like FaceTime in the ear. I hear you. I'm looking at your ear. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, like, we have to have uh, minimum guarantees for people who are, you know, like, not so advanced technologically mm-hmm. or who not to be. You know, you cannot force everyone to have to do this. It's great. Yeah, it has its advantages. But, you know, you can't just leave outside of the life. You know, it's talking about the digital divide, right? And another, and that's again like the legislation piece. And another one that's very important for me, and I think it combines kind of legislation and culture and coaching, is about what we're teaching to children and e-learning. Yeah, I think it's absolutely essential not just to teach only digital skills, but also human skills. And I think we need to define what are the digital skills we're teaching, because swiping on an iPad is not a digital skill. Knowing how to use Alexa is not a digital skill. And uh, I think that the schools have the right and should have the right to opt in or out, for example, of using iPads. In Switzerland, they don't, for example. And I have a coach working in Switzerland, and she says it's a problem because teachers are not prepared to teach it. They don't understand it. Children basically are just wasting time, you know, entertaining themselves on the iPads. And, you know, what's the value of that? Yeah, that's a great market for somebody who is selling them the iPads or whatever they're using or other tablets. But I think it's a case that where schools should be able to choose how they're teaching, where parents should be able to ask questions about the program and whether the usage of technology is monitored how it's been monitored, uh, how the progress is monitored. Is there a control group? That's a big experiment, right? And in fact, if you look at the OECD and PISA research of two years, uh, it actually shows that the have investment in technology does not have any impact on students' achievements. In simple words, whether schools have been pouring money into tech or not, a difference on whether students study better. And the question is, why is it, <laughs> why is it that they're doing this? The sad answer is because it's becoming a very lucrative market for big tech companies, which is okay by themselves, right? But, you know, we can't just leave, you know, teachers who absolutely have no training to this just face-to-face with it. This is when there should be some regulation. You know, it was the same thing, I think, when there were sweet drinks uh, producers who were trying to install, you know, the machines in schools to sell like all the sugary stuff and then there was some kind of intervention. I think it's the same thing, right? Again, like I'm not against completely uh, e-learning. My course is online. But first of all, most of e-learning courses that are being sold now actually have been created in early 2000. Second, there is no training for parents. In most cases, there is no training for teachers. Third, there is absolutely no system established that monitors what works, what doesn't, what needs to be left to technology, what not. 
So, you know, we're running a very big experiment that's paid out of our own pockets. <laughs> and uh, where essentially the clear uh, beneficiary is actually the producer of the device of the software. I think that's a very costly experiment. Yeah, though I do think that there is a lot of development. I, I worked back in, in the 90s with a group that was developing education technology for the first virtual high school, which was delivering content for the kids that were in the Department of Defense schools and living on the Indian nations and things like that. Then it evolved to people that lived in small towns, that the curriculum, they were only offered a very small amount of curriculum. It gave them opportunity to learn other things or advanced levels, et cetera, et cetera. So I think with those groups, and, and this was with a think tank, and they've been around for a long time. I advised the European Commission on similar things when I was when I moved over to Brussels later in the 90s. And it was the same kind of conversation. Of course, then it was the internet and, you know, will people ever make, you know, use it for purchasing things and banking? Like, oh, that'll never happen. I'm like, look, this is the future. You need to think about it. You need to consider it. Don't say no, it'll never happen. But it's the same conversation as we've moved along. It's just, you know, some of the technologies have changed. But I think coming back to the education piece, I think there are opportunities to really dig deeper into some of, I mean, the technology has changed so much that we actually do have these opportunities to create some really good hybrid environments where there, you know, the technology is a mediated tool to get the content, but it in, it encourages you to engage with the content in a different way, both online and offline. And when we can really understand what those two pieces are and teach teachers how to do it more effectively and provide parents the tools to be able to do when we're here in, in a, you know, lockdown stage, help them understand how to do the physical part but also really help the students understand how to get the most out of that content. Because it's not just the little kids that we're having this problem. We've got a lot of universities that are now going online. And that doesn't mean that the curriculum has been adapted. It just means that in a lot of cases, it's, it's like the old world when we first started doing internet sites and the companies were uploading a PDF and saying, here's our website. You know, you can't do that, you know, with educational content. That's only serving one kind of learning style. And so you really need, you know, we have this opportunity now to have video, to have interactive environments, you know, even Zoom conversations, just have a talking head for an hour. I mean, anybody will go crazy. You need to have the opportunity to be able to engage without distracting. And that's the piece that I think is really, ultimately, we need to both learn as we go here, but also share as much as possible on our learnings so that we can really accommodate all the different learning styles. And for kids, yes, you know, the thing is, as digital natives, they don't see the difference between an online interaction and an offline interaction. For them, it's just an interaction. So, you know, if we stop thinking the way us non-digital natives are, because for us, it was a learned process. For them, it's just part of the process. If we take that hat off and try to think more like they are, then I think it'll help us actually adapt our curriculum and adapt our communication patterns to suit their learning styles and make sure that they are learning that human element. Take the time to have a conversation at the kitchen table about the content that they're learning in the class. Take it offline and instead of having a Minecraft building teamwork exercise, pull out the Legos and build something. So I think, you know, if we really can, you know, do a lot more best practice sharing, there are opportunities to really learn because e-learning is not new. It's just that now everybody's having to do it. 
So yeah, yeah. and um, I mean, I'm I'm following a lot of learning because I was obviously creating my own course. The way we're trying to do with our course, I was actually very much against the whole idea of online uh, learning because with coaching it's difficult, right? I actually don't do anything pre-recorded. And in a way, that's why it works really well, because there is a lot of spontaneity. And, uh, we like, we're a group, then I break into triads. So there is lots of, you know, like this social learning and, you know, allowing things to happen in the moment. And I think this is what I'm missing when we're talking about software. I absolutely agree with you about the need, you know, to have online and offline elements of learning yeah, and balancing that. And also, it's an interesting question to think about how the role of a teacher is evolving and changing. Because if we're creating the software that essentially leaves to the teacher the role of uh, somebody who's pressing the button, this is a very sad world. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, the human interaction, the human learning largely is a social process. It just evolves. So, and of course, we can force it's not to be, of course, we can, you know, play with, you know, entertaining children. And, you know, now there is a fashion of, you know, making very short bit-sized videos because they can't sustain their attention for more than two minutes. But this is a vicious circle, right? <laughs> How are they going to learn to sustain their attention if all the information is bit-sized? It's not about that, right? It's about, like, being able to switch different activities. But I'm very much in favor of putting, like, the teacher or the human in the process, part of the process, and then having technology as a helping element. There are two types of airplanes, right? There's Boeing and Airbus. So I don't remember which is which, so I apologize, but one of them basically has a strategy of the software runs everything, and you know the human is just there, just in case, and, you know, controlling. And the other one is actually, no, it's actually the human who's in charge of everything. And the software is just there backing him up. And there have been fewer incidents with the letter. So for me, I'm very much the advocate of having human in the center, the center of the corporate culture, in the center of the school, process learning, yeah, whatever it is. And then, yes, having technology, but as something that is helping, that is secondary, that maybe is providing tools for making informed decision doing the research much faster that then ultimately, you know, we're building the society for the humans, hopefully for the nature and include other animals, inhabitants of the nature and not building the world for the machines and probably to make human-centric life-centric. Absolutely. And I, I, it's a perfect way to pull this conversation to a close because I'm afraid we've run out of time. We're, we could keep on going for hours. But really, I mean, that's what this podcast is all about. It's what our conversation is all about. It's how do we integrate technology so that it supports humanity rather than becoming it. And I think, you know, what you're doing is wonderful. Thank you so much for your, your work with digital well-being, and I hope it continues to grow. And I want to make sure that folks can find you if they want to learn more about your work. So how do they, how do they find you and how do they reach out if they're interested in learning from you? The easiest way is to go to consciously-digital.com website. Uh, we have a contact form, contact form, which actually we read. Otherwise, uh, we also have mindfully, like mindful social media. We try uh, not to overwhelm people sharing different research, their programs. So find us on Twitter and YouTube. Great. Well, we will make sure we'll put all of your links on the show notes. And uh, folks, if you're driving, which hopefully you're not driving, 
and you're enjoying a nice hike out in the woods or the mountains or wherever you live, somewhere outdoors where you're getting some fresh air, uh, listening to this podcast with the earbuds or whatever it is, and hopefully not Bluetooth earbuds either, because we are all about digital well-being. You got to take care of yourself, right? All little things help. Anyway, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Anastasia. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And thank you, Digital Sulfurs, for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you subscribe and rate and so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. And if you really love the show, we appreciate a rating and review. Don't forget to share it with us so we make sure we give you a little love in return. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.